Just before we begin this week's episode, I wanted to take a moment to offer a word of caution, as this episode examines some particularly atrocious crimes as a part of telling these people's stories. We don't censor on Cold Case Detective, and I know you wouldn't want us to, but I did just want to give a word of warning that a couple of these cases are very extreme, and to give you a chance to brace yourselves for that. With that in mind, we can begin. Thank you. Most of us feel at home in a group of friends, or safe in a sea of people in a public place. We feel secure in our houses, our doors are locked, our windows are shut tight, and likely, we live with another person, if not multiple. As the saying goes, there's safety in numbers. However, this is not always the case. Across the globe, the sanctity of the home is breached every day, as people are assaulted, burglarized, or even murdered in their own properties. In today's video, we'll be looking at three particularly unnerving and unsolved murders that took place in the victims' very own homes. Margaret and Shauna Tapp. The double murder of Margaret Christine Tapp and her daughter Shauna Lee Tapp is one of Australia's most notorious unsolved murders. Taking place on August 7th, 1984, the family resided in Ferntree Gully in Melbourne, Victoria, when an unidentified assailant broke into their home and brutally murdered them. Margaret, a 35-year-old nurse and law student, was beaten and strangled with a length of rope, whilst her daughter, nine-year-old Shauna, was sexually assaulted and then strangled. Her lifeless body was found on her bed when the pair were discovered the following day. The afternoon of August 8th, the boyfriend of Margaret's sister came for a visit as he was passing through the neighborhood. He picked up their newspaper and approached the door. While he knocked, he noticed that Margaret's car was there so was surprised when no one seemed to come to the door. It wasn't until later in the day, around 6 p.m., when Margaret's date for the night, Jim, came to pick her up, that the bodies were discovered. Jim entered through the back door, which had a faulty lock, when no one answered at the front of the house. Aghast at the scene he found inside, he went next door to the home of their neighbors and called the emergency services. Upon first glance, investigators thought that the scene looked like that of a domestic violence case. Jim, Margaret's date, was prime suspect number one, since he was the one who discovered the bodies, and while he was interrogated, his story was found to be sound. He was also later cleared via DNA evidence. Margaret's ex-husband was another obvious suspect, but he had a solid alibi for the night of the murder and was dismissed also. A neighbor reported to authorities that she'd heard muffled screams from the house around 11 p.m. And the people who lived across the road noticed that the Tapp's normally quiet spaniel barked and howled around midnight. This, at least, gave investigators some sort of time frame to work with. 
but after interviewing Margaret's date and ex-husband, the case trail began to grow cold. Given Margaret's busy social and love life, it seemed that there were just too many different leads to follow, which made it hard for police to prioritize and work them. Not only this, but authorities found little in the way of forensic evidence. They gathered DNA evidence from Shauna's nightgown, but found no unknown fingerprints in the house. Dunlop Valley tennis shoe prints were found in Margaret's bedroom and the bathroom. This lack of evidence is perhaps what slowed the case the most, as authorities are widely criticized for their slow progress on the case. It took over 20 years for Margaret's own brother to be ruled out as a suspect, as well as a former colleague of his who is described as a violent man with a record and who once delivered furniture to Margaret's home. A notoriously troublesome family on the street are yet to be cleared. Margaret hired one of the children, a teenage son, to mow her lawn and wash her car, which caused neighbors to warn her off speaking to him as he had made sexually suggestive remarks to other women. More disturbingly, the sister of this young man lived in a caravan beside the house with her boyfriend, who was later jailed for rape. Margaret had also been taking driving lessons around the time of her murder, and her instructor, who had an interest in her, had given her free lessons so he could continue seeing her. Police found his prints in her house, but when questioned about it, he denied ever having been in the home. One suspect in the case of Margaret and Shauna's murders was a former senior policeman, Ian Cook, now retired, who knew Margaret's dad and was a friend of the family's. He seemed to be quickly dismissed from the investigation, but Margaret's sister brought up his name the very day the bodies were found. A few days prior, he had been visiting and brought gifts with him. Cook had allegedly tried to get Margaret to sleep with him, and she was irritated by his unwanted attention. A search of his car turned up a whip and a length of rope, but it seems that no further progress came from this lead. Friends of Margaret's offered up some of the most compelling information when it came to suspects. They claimed she had relationships with four or more doctors at the hospital she worked in, plus maintained a long-term rocky affair with a married doctor who died in a car crash before the murder. According to the Herald Sun, Margaret's home was provided for her by this same doctor. His wife reportedly knew of the affair, and Margaret had even come to their doorstep once to beg the doctor to leave his wife and come and live with her. The confrontations between the two continued for a time after the death of the doctor, as Margaret tried to secure the house he had left her in court, eventually being granted half of the property. She went on to purchase the other half of the home. A fellow nurse at the hospital Margaret worked in said she'd thought a spurned lover was responsible for the murders, as she often ridiculed them and could, quote, chop men up into little pieces. It was found that a married man Margaret was studying with had had lunch with her the Tuesday that she died, and that a Ford utility vehicle was parked near the house not long before the murders, but the owner was never identified. In 2008, the prosecution of a suspect in the case fell apart 
when it was revealed that the evidence against him was in fact contaminated. And in 2017, one million Australian dollars was offered as a reward for information leading to the conviction of the killer. This sum is roughly the equivalent of 700,000 US dollars. Despite the numerous leads police had at their disposal, the tragic double homicide of Margaret Tapp and her nine-year-old daughter remains unsolved. The Dardeen Family Murders On November 18th, 1987, 29-year-old Russell Keith Dardeen, a treatment plant operator for a lake water facility, didn't turn up to his shift. A normally reliable worker, his colleagues and boss grew concerned when he didn't even call in sick to inform his workplace of his condition. Keith's supervisor called each of his parents as they were divorced, but they hadn't seen or heard from him either. Keith's father arranged to meet local police to investigate the mobile home Keith and his family resided in. Neither expected to find the truly horrific scene that awaited them. Inside the home were the bodies of Keith's wife, Ruby Elaine Dardeen, their two-year-old son, Peter, and their previously unborn daughter, Casey. All three were tucked up into the same bed. Elaine had been bound and gagged with duct tape, and she and Peter had been beaten to death with a baseball bat found at the scene. The bat was a birthday gift from Keith to his son. It seemed that Ruby Elaine Dardeen, who had been heavily pregnant at the time, had been beaten so badly that she'd gone into labor, delivering a baby girl who was also subsequently murdered like her mother and brother. It was noticed quickly that Keith was not in the home and that his red 1981 Plymouth car was missing too. Investigators assumed that he had some sort of mental break and was responsible for the horrific slaughter of his family but his body was found by hunters the following day in a field near the trailer. He'd been shot three times and sexually mutilated. The Plymouth was found parked outside the police station at Benton, 11 miles from the home. The interior was splattered with blood. Local police and Illinois state cops worked together on the investigation, with 30 detectives assigned to work the case full time. 100 people were interviewed, and a man who was taken into custody early on was soon released, although there is little information as to why he was brought in. Another co-worker, who'd had a disagreement with Keith, was interviewed, but dismissed as a suspect. Neither Elaine nor her husband Keith had any alcohol or drugs in their system. A small quantity of marijuana was found in the trailer, but not in sufficient quantity to imply that the couple were dealing drugs, and the police suspected it was possibly inadvertently dropped by the killer. The time of death served to muddy the waters of the case further, as each member was killed within an hour of the other. Elaine, Peter, and Casey had been dead for 12 hours before they were found, whilst Keith had been dead for 24 to 36 hours by the time he was found. Authorities couldn't determine how the murders were carried out, but it was speculated that since the killer had time to tidy up the crime scene and took three family members in bed, they mustn't have been in a rush to leave, which led to the idea that perhaps Keith was killed first. As there was no evidence of forced entry, 
police wondered if the family had been killed by someone they knew. Keith's mother, Joanne, said the increasing crime rates in the area had led to Keith and Elaine putting their mobile home up for sale so they could move somewhere that felt safer, and that Keith especially had become increasingly protective of the family. When a young woman came to the door to ask to use their phone, he refused to let her in. This makes it seem possible that someone the family knew had come to the door and committed the crimes. No valuables were missing from the home and no sexual assaults had taken place, which prompted police to speculate about what could possibly be the motive behind the crime. The Franklin County coroner gave his two cents by adding that he felt the crime was motivated by personal reasons and was not a random act of brutal violence. Elaine worked at an office supply store, and she and her husband partook in a musical ensemble with a small Baptist church in their free time. There was no evidence of extramarital affairs by either party. By all accounts, they were a happy, well-liked family. Still, given the sexual mutilation and whispers that Elaine's child had been ripped from the womb, drove conspiratorial speculations that the culprits were Satanists active in the area, performing a ritual sacrifice of the family. Police experts on cults disputed this theory by pointing out that there was very little mutilation, no body parts were harvested, and there was a lack of symbolism and lit candles at the scene, which are things common in ritualistic killings. FBI profilers found that the crime scene defied their usual analytical methods and could provide little in the way of new insights and leads. Joanne, Keith's mother, has been a huge advocate for finding answers in the case. She theorizes that the family were possibly murdered in a case of mistaken identity, or maybe someone tried to force her son into doing something illegal, such as selling drugs, and he was killed for refusing. She also speculates that maybe Elaine rejected someone's advances and was murdered in revenge. Joanne works tirelessly on finding new leads, reporting anything she finds to the lone officer still working the case, and asking constantly if there's any new movement in it. America's Most Wanted ran a segment on the story in 1988, but the Oprah Winfrey show declined to run the story on the basis that it was too gruesome for daytime TV. After this point, theories begin to peter out. Angel Resendez was considered a suspect at one point in time, but no connection was ever made between him and the murder of the Dardines. Resendez was a particularly violent serial killer who traveled the country by train, chose victims near the tracks, and beat them to death. At some time in the year 2000 or shortly after, serial killer Tommy Sells, awaiting trial for murder, admitted to other crimes, including the needless deaths of the Dardines. However, many find Sells' alleged confession hard to believe for a number of reasons, including that he changed his story numerous times. He first claimed to have met Keith at a truck stop or pool hall. He gave different variations. And after being invited to the Dardines' home for dinner, Sells' anger was triggered by Keith sexually propositioning him. In one version, he says Keith asked him to participate in a threesome with Elaine. Sells then said he forced Keith by gunpoint to drive to the area he was killed in, and then he returned home 
to murder the rest of the family. In the third version of events, as told by Sells, he didn't meet Keith at all, but decided, upon seeing the for sale sign outside the Dardine home, to knock on the door of the home and pretend to be a buyer. He overpowered Keith and forced him to gag and bind the rest of the family. He then forced the 29-year-old to the area he was killed in and returned to the family home. He claimed to have raped Elaine before killing her and her children. But there are several discrepancies in this last story, starting with the fact that Elaine was not sexually assaulted. It is important to note, once again, that this was a family so paranoid about crime, they wouldn't even let a young woman in. So how could one account for the Dardines opening their door to a man like Tommy Sells? Sells was also less reliable about information not made public, often giving the wrong answer several times. It's possible he simply guessed the right answer after a few tries. Friends and family also think that the claims of Keith making advances are unlikely, as Keith never showed an interest in other men. Authorities believe it's likely he confessed so he could take advantage of the judicial system's gratitude, perhaps looking for a more lenient sentencing. But the harrowing case of the Dardine family remains unsolved to this day. The Setagaya Family Murders The Setagaya family murders that occurred in Setagaya, Tokyo, are some of the most peculiar murders to have occurred in recent years. Despite being the subject of one of the biggest investigations in Japan, having a large number of clues, and finding out very specific details about the murderer, no one has ever been charged for the horrendous slaying of the Miyazawa family. 44-year-old Mikio Miyazawa worked for a London-based consulting firm, while his wife, 41-year-old Yasuko, was a school teacher. Together they had two children, 8-year-old Nina and 6-year-old Ray, and lived in a mostly abandoned neighbourhood near a skate park, with only two or three other families residing there. According to witnesses, days before the murder of the family, Mikio was seen arguing with a skateboarder from the nearby busy skate park, while another saw him arguing with a biker gang, although details on this are hazy at best. It was also reported that a car was repeatedly parked outside the house of the Miyazawa family, and on the night of the killings, around 11.35pm, a man was seen hurrying away on a path near the home. It was possibly the killer leaving, although this cannot be said for certain. On the night of December 30th, 2000, around 10.38 to 10.45, the family computer received an email that required a password to open. This is the last time that the family were known to be alive. The next day, Yasuko's mother, who lived next door with several other family members, called the family only to be met with silence. Concerned, she went to the house of her daughter, only to find no one came to the door, which was locked from the inside. Using her own key, Yasuko's mother let herself in, only to stumble upon a terrifying scene. Six-year-old Ray had been strangled whilst asleep in his bunk bed, while Yasuko, Nina, and Mikio had all been stabbed to death. Strangely, the females in the family had been attacked more savagely, long after their death, 
suggesting to investigators that perhaps this person had a hatred for women. The investigation into the deaths of the Miyazawa family was one of the biggest to be undertaken in Japanese history. Over 246,000 investigators have worked the case and 12,545 pieces of evidence have been taken and analysed. Investigators found that the phone lines in the house had been cut and that the second floor bathroom window was open, leading to speculation that this was how the culprit entered. It's theorised that Ray was killed first and that Mikio heard some sort of noise upstairs while working in his office and went to investigate when he ran into the killer at the top of the stairs. His body was found at the bottom of them. Yasuko and Nina were found at the foot of the ladder leading to the third floor loft, and it's believed that they'd likely gone to hide when the killer went for a second knife, after damaging his first when he killed Mikio. The most bizarre aspect of the murder of the Japanese foursome is that it seems that the killer hung around the house for hours afterwards. He used the family computer, ate ice cream, drank barley tea, and napped on the couch. He even used the toilet, as investigators were able to collect and analyse faeces found, which showed that the day before, he had eaten string beans and sesame seeds. The killer also left behind clothing items and the murder weapons. Only 130 units of the sweater he wore were made and sold, but authorities only tracked down 12 buyers. Most of the brands he wore were from skateboarding stores, and his shoes appeared to be labelled with a Korean size rather than Japanese. The clothing left indicated that the killer was 170 centimetres and of a thin build. A hip bag belonging to the killer was found too, and sand inside it was found to be from the Edwards Air Force Base in California. There also appeared to be some sand from a Japanese skate park, although there's no true clarification on whether it's from a specific skate park or not. Some articles also state that grip tape for the surface of skateboards was found inside. Six hours after the crime was discovered, a 30-something-year-old man was treated for a deep hand wound at the local hospital. A first aid kit had been found in the house, with bandages found in the kitchen and living room. Some of the bandages had blood on, and it was established that some belonged to Nina and some belonged to the killer. The man in the hospital didn't give a name or reason for his wound and was simply treated and discharged. Many have speculated that this man was the killer. It also seemed that some money was missing from the Miyazawa family home, a quantity valued at approximately 1,250 US dollars. But investigators found money lying about that hadn't been taken, so it was ruled out that robbery was a motive, especially as no other valuables had been stolen. Also gone from the house was an old jacket of Mikyo's, and the computer power cord could not be located. Some articles report that New Year's Eve greeting cards were also missing, but this was later proven false, as an officer had actually taken them into evidence to follow up with the family and friends who had sent them. According to Yasuko's mother, a loud bang sounded at around 11.30pm. This was possibly caused by Mikio falling down the stairs, or the soft ladder deploying. In 2017, 
DNA analysis revealed that the traces of blood type A that were found at the scene and didn't belong to the family showed that the killer's mother is of European descent, possibly from a country near the Mediterranean or the Adriatic Sea. The Y chromosome also showed that the father is of Asian descent. Every year, the Tokyo Metropolitan Police make a pilgrimage to the house for memorial ceremonies. Despite the masses of information available and the huge investigation that was undertaken, the murders of the Miyazawa family remain unsolved. And there you have the facts. Please leave your own thoughts, theories, and speculations in the comments section below. And remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. Thank you for watching. Please stay alert, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.